Hi, I'm Sonia. I'm Megan. Welcome to another episode of... Sheltered Spring! stays and who goes who moves freely while we cannot it's comforting to see birds bees and butterflies flitting by my window although i am kind of jealous of them stuck inside sheltering in place as a preventative measure in response to the covid19 pandemic has halted most human activity and movement of people and hopefully the rapid spread of the virus let's get into it what is migration? Well, according to Kai Zhu, my ENVS 24 professor, migration, most simply put, is movement. So how are you handling the transition from an Alan's hummingbird lifestyle to an Anna's hummingbird? No, this isn't a question about sex or gender. What I'm asking is how are you handling change in your own migration pattern? My name is Thomas Savoy, and I'm getting my bachelor's degree in science. Uh, from the University of California, Santa Cruz in ecology and evolutionary biology. I was hired at Younger Lagoon Natural Reserve after doing two internships there. My job at the reserve is assisting with the reserve's bird banding station. I've also had the chance to design and test my own research, testing the flower and nectar preferences of Anna's hummingbirds in the Santa Lucia Mountains of Big Sur. Anna's hummingbirds are typically iridescent green and pink, or reddish. Their Latin name is Calypte Anna. Anna's hummingbirds are one of my favorite birds, and one of the most amazing things about them is their ability to move at such incredible speeds. And I'm talking about being able to move at speeds of over 50 miles per hour when they're only three and a half to four inches long. And in comparison to their size, that's the fastest moving animal in the world. So it might seem interesting that unlike the majority of hummingbirds, Annas don't really migrate. Unlike a lot of hummingbirds that live in the same region as Anna's hummingbirds, they don't migrate north to south. What migration they do is mostly just moving relatively short distances to better feeding grounds, per se, the coast up into the mountains following a bloom of flowers. And another reason is that there's a fair number of Anna's that don't migrate, and they're actually just residents to their own ecosystems. Allen's hummingbirds are another species that are found commonly here in California. An Allen's hummingbird is generally green and orange, iridescent, and about 3 to 3.5 inches. Uh, but while most Anna's hummingbirds are residents to their local ecosystems, Owens are a migratory bird. They um, can be found living in central Mexico at high abundances between the months of August to October, 
and then tend to migrate north to their breeding grounds. So they're moving up the Pacific coast, they find places to nest from all the way up in southern Oregon, going all the way south down to the central coast of California near Santa Barbara. And now once this bloom dies back on the coastal regions of California, they migrate towards the Sierra Nevada mountain range where the bloom is in full swing. Once that tends to die off, they then make their way down south through the mountain ridge back to the central of Mexico. And during these months where they're migrating between breeding grounds in the coastal California back down to their wintering site in central Mexico, we can find Allen's hummingbirds in much of eastern Mexico and even in states like Arizona. But there are two subspecies of Allen's hummingbird. Salasphorus sazen sazen is the subspecies that abides by the migratory patterns I just mentioned. Then we have Salasphorus sazen sedentarius, which is a subspecies of Allen's hummingbird that live in the Channel Islands and the LA region on the coast of California and the birds that live here are non-migratory birds that live in this area all year long. And so the next logical question is why are these birds often with a pretty overlapping region, why is one migrating and one isn't? Now this is a really complicated question, it doesn't have a simple answer and I really can't get into all of it, breaking it down to the bare basics. Anna's hummingbirds don't have the need to migrate. Their original range never extended north of San Francisco, and in these areas they were able to sustain themselves on plants like gooseberry and other species that provided year-long food. And so when we get this expansion northwards from introduction of species like eucalyptus trees into the Bay Area, and we get this massive urbanization of Oregon and Washington, where we're getting all of these home gardens that have flowers blooming year-long in different seasons, and hummingbird feeders at the ready. They really didn't have a need to migrate from one area to another. And even in the northernmost section of their range, Anna's hummingbirds can avoid the cold of winter nights by taking advantage of a state called torpor, where they decrease their metabolism and heart rate to be able to survive the cold nights, living off of the body fat and other proteins that they've packed on throughout the day. And now on the other hand, why Allen's hummingbirds migrate is because while well, a lot of their range to the east and southeast of their breeding territory are fairly desolate in the winter, when you get this Mediterranean climate here in southern and central California, you have a much more wild winter that tends to bring this really large bloom in late winter that is a really great food source for Allens. And so really, they're just following the food and where it's best for them. 
Likely the reason that the subspecies Sedentarius doesn't migrate is because they have a more constant food availability in this more moderate climate. The primary means that ornithologists use for tracking bird migration is bird banding. Bird banding is this process where we as scientists catch birds in a variety of ways, either by using ground traps or nets that birds fly into and get caught in. So once we catch the birds, we put these thin metal bands around their leg that have a identifying number on them. For example, at my station, our tags are metallic with a nine-digit code. Other stations use colored bands, for instance, uh, when studying populations in order to better differentiate between individuals. These bands help us to keep an online database of birds caught at different banding stations around the world and see their migration patterns. Some stations even use bands that either periodically send a signal giving their position to a satellite or record their positioning as the bird flies and has to be retrieved from the bird later on. For the last few decades, bird populations have been falling at an alarming rate, which was first alluded to by Rachel Carson in her book Silent Spring all the way back in 1962. And since then, we've made some really great conservation efforts with many species, but in North America alone, we've also seen a net loss of 3 billion birds, which is a 29% reduction from the population in 1970. And as birds continue to face increasing threats from factors like climate change and habitat degradation, tracking bird migration can help us in their conservation. And a great example of this is the peregrine falcon that faced near extinction between the 1950s and 70s. Thankfully, with extensive knowledge of the species, and when, where, and how they breed. Ornithologists were able to take their eggs from nests in the wild, ensure that they lived long enough to hatch and be healthy, and then return them to their parents afterwards in the wild. An ornithologist is someone who studies or is an expert on birds. Through these efforts of bird stations around the world, we can see, for instance, how bird populations are moving as parts of their original range become unsuitable for their habitat and other needs, and new areas are becoming primed for their entrance. And so my biggest hope is that by learning more and understanding better, we are able to reduce our harmful effects on these wildlife. Well, COVID-19 has been making life really complicated for the last few months. As someone who likes to spend a lot of times outdoors, uh, the shelter in place has been especially rough. Like many other people, my job at Youngerwood Yoon isn't an essential service, and as a result, we can't get the work done that we need to. All student employees, which are the majority of workers at the Legume, are restricted from working. As a result, our bird banding station has been put on hold in our current restoration plot, too. And this is the case for a lot of people in the environmental field. But, you know, thankfully, lucky for us, the natural world is everywhere and we can still get out every day, at least for a quick walk. I've probably seen Anna's hummingbirds every day in my backyard and on my street, including a bunch of other birds. And so I've been really lucky and really appreciating that in these hard times. 
thank you for having me, Sonia. If you tracked your own migration over shelter-in-place and compared it to your movement before COVID-19 was rampant and before the shelter-in-place order was put into effect, I'm sure you'd see similar differences to those between Anna's and Alan's hummingbirds' migration patterns. Another animal who also migrates around this time of year sounds like... What you just heard was a northern elephant seal. Northern elephant seals, or known by their Latin name, Moranga angustirostris, have a range that spans the coast of California as well as lower northern Baja. Northern elephant seals are a common sight on the coast of California at places like Point Reyes and Ana Nuevo during the warmer months, along with other breeding grounds. They are most often seen sunning themselves on the shore, but for most of the year, they're out in the northern Pacific Ocean feeding. Not much is known about this period at sea, so we asked Patrick Robinson at Ana Nuevo Coastal Lab for more information about the journey and study of the elephant seals. Brief editorial interruption. Patrick Robinson is the director of the Ana Nuevo Reserve, a UCSC natural reserve, and conducts research with the Costa Lab, part of the UCSC Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department. Fair warning, he was outside when we did this interview, so there are some loud gusts of wind interspersed throughout. Hello, Um, I guess introduction, my name is Megan, I'm an undergrad at UCSC in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and how about yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Uh, So my name is Patrick Robinson, I'm the director of the Año Nuevo Reserve, and a lecturer at UC Santa Cruz as well. Cool. I called you to discuss the migrations of elephant seals and how that works and how it's going currently with the climate of COVID-19 and social distancing. You're, you said you were out in the field right now, so clearly you're still doing research and stuff. What are you currently yeah. doing research on? Yeah, so uh, we basically have this uh, long-term uh, project going on with the elephant seals as uh, part of Dan Costa's uh, research lab at UC Santa Cruz. And some of the projects uh, were definitely impacted by the whole coronavirus um, epidemic here, but some projects we were able to move forward with, with permission, of course. So we had to seek permission from the upper administration and um, develop some protocols to minimize risk and all of that. But yeah, we were able to do some fieldwork out here, in particular the, the fieldwork that involves um, a minimum number of people interacting. And fortunately, there's a, a decent amount of the research that we do out here that involves uh, not too much human-to-human interaction. Uh, so today I was out here uh, reading flipper tags, for example. And so we have a big demographic project going on across I think it's about four or five decades now, well beyond my lifespan out here. Um, keeping track of individuals through time. And so from that, we can look at how long individuals live, and if they move between colonies, how often they birth, all these interesting demographic parameters. Um, but more to your question with the uh, movements, um, we are also engaged in a, a long-term study of their at-sea behavior using satellite tags and time-depth recorders. And um, interestingly, we put out a bunch of satellite tags and time-depth recorders uh, this past breeding season, so this past February. And of course, not knowing that we would have any of these COVID-19 issues 
uh, moving forward in the spring. And so we had all of these animals out at sea with our expensive instruments, and they're now um, just starting to return. We actually found the first animal um, of the season uh, this morning. So uh, we did get permission to have a small team to go in to recover those instruments since it is very time sensitive. Cool, that's exciting. Yeah. Just to clarify, uh, what is a time recorder? Yeah, so to study the at-sea behavior of the seals, we use a variety of electronic tags. Um, it's, as you can imagine, quite difficult to follow these animals as they go on their epic migrations, thousands of kilometers into the North Pacific and hundreds or even thousands of meters down in depth. So rather than follow them, we have to attach instruments to them to measure their behavior. The, one of the more basic instruments that we put out is a time depth recorder. And as the name implies, it's a clock, so it measures time and the depth and temperature um, that the animal's experiencing. So basically it's a, a pressure sensor that just records to a little memory chip. We kind of think of it as like a little Fitbit or an elephant seal, you know, just recording some basic information along the migration of the animal. And then when it comes back, we can recover that instrument and get a full trace of all of the diving activity that the animal did over the course of its entire multi-month migration. And what's really neat is that elephant seals are pretty easy to study relative to other marine mammals. So what we can do is um, instrument a relatively small number of animals every season and then do that again and again every year to recycle the same instruments. And so it's actually not super expensive for us to collect an amazing amount of data on the behavior of the seals and a little bit of data on the environment in the Northeast Pacific. Interesting. I was curious about what is the, I guess, basic migration pattern of the species specifically? I read that males take a wildly different route than females do. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the migration path of elephant seals that leave on Nuevo here, we think, is fairly similar to the other colonies, um, some minor differences. But, you know, we like to think that the animals here are representative of the entire species. And their migration routes differ extremely based on the age and sex class. So we know the most about adult females. And that's simply because we've put out the most biologging tags, these time depth recorders and satellite tags, on the adult females. And the reason we sort of focused in on that group is because they're very reliable. So they'll come back um, you know, about 90, 95% of the time um, if we instrument an animal, it will come back and we'll be able to recover instruments from it. And you compare that to some other species, there are species of uh, sharks, for example, or tuna, and you know, they're thrilled if they get maybe 20% of their instruments back. So we're really lucky that we have very reliable animals. So the, the adult females um, are just super reliable, so we're able to put out um, a decent number of instruments on them and get them back and reuse them. So we focus most of our effort there. And we've been able to show that the general pattern for an adult female leaving Aninuevo Reserve on the California coast here is just to kind of go northwest out into the middle of the North Pacific Ocean. It's an area where if you were to look out on a map, you would just, you know, halfway between Alaska and Hawaii and way offshore of California, just in the middle of nowhere. And we honestly don't know very much about that area of the ocean relative to you know, coastal areas that are more heavily studied. Um, but they're able to find a reliable prey resource out there. And so they cruise out to that area, um, and spend months at a time feeding out there at hundreds of meters in depth, and then cruise straight back. And so they have pretty straight migratory paths out. They have very circuitous paths once they're there, um, searching for food, and then pretty straight paths back. There are some individuals, you know, of course, 
instrument, enough animals, you'll find like bizarre ones. Um, some animals go all the way to the Aleutian Islands, some stay very coastal, some go a tiny bit south, um, but the vast majority of the animals that we've instrumented just go out to the middle of the Northeast Pacific there. So that's adult females. And then the adult males, we haven't instrumented quite as many of those. To give a little more insight on this, females are tagged more often due to their previously mentioned reliability, along with the fact that they have more influence over the next generation, as elephant seals are a highly polygynous species, meaning that typically, a small number of males will mate with a large number of females. Therefore, not all males will sire pups, but most females will give birth to pups, making them more important to track in order to accurately follow the trend of the population. However, that's not to say that tagging males is unimportant, as they still present interesting information that we recently have become more aware of. Um, there's been a recent pulse of effort on um, tagging males because a graduate student in Dan Costa's lab, Sarah Keenly, um, did part of her PhD dissertation looking at that. And the previous work, plus her newer work, um, confirmed that males go to very different places than the adult females. Basically, the adult males feed in very coastal areas on the continental shelf instead of far off the continental shelf with the females. So the males might cut across the open ocean, um, so many of them go all the way up to um, the Alaskan coastline, um, but they don't probably feed very much along the way. They're mostly feeding on the continental shelf margin um, between Alaska and all the way down to Washington and Oregon. Um, so we think that they feed pretty much in different areas. There are some females that adopt a male-like strategy, but I, as far as I know, we have not yet recorded a male that feeds in the middle of the ocean like an adult female does. So we have these very distinct patterns there. And then when you go down into the, the weanling and juvenile age classes, we know very, very little about those. And there's a, a postdoc in Dan Costa's lab, uh, Roxanne Beltra. And what she's doing is putting these same types of satellite tags and time death recorders on weanling seals on their very first trip to sea. And we have very little data at this point, but the little bit of data that we do have seems to indicate that the weanling seals definitely do not behave like either males or females. They kind of have their own distinct pattern. And it involves staying along the coast a little bit longer and then venturing offshore um, like the females do. You know, some very different patterns there. And we don't have very much information on the juvenile animals at all yet. So still some unknowns there. Cool, that's exciting. How is the pandemic or the shelter-in-place orders affecting your interaction with and or appreciation of uh, the species that you're studying or just nature in general? Have you been going out more now that you've been told that you can't? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so... Yeah, how is this whole uh, global pandemic affecting us? Um, in general, this would normally be one of our very busy seasons out here for all of the researchers that work on elephant seals. Mm -hmm. So we would be out here on a daily basis, uh, many hours per day um, throughout this entire um, molt season. So first part of the year is the breeding season and now we're into the, the molt season. And so the effect of that has been to reduce our research presence out here by a little bit. So uh, like I said earlier, we're still doing um, the basic flipper tag recites and recovering our biological instruments, but we're, it's a smaller effort than we normally would be putting in, and that's to, to minimize risk to the researchers, of course. And we're having smaller teams out 
um, just to get the basic amount of work done without much interaction. And then we normally would be bringing classes. Out. For example, I teach an undergraduate class where we train the undergraduates to help us with different aspects of the research. And that's a very powerful experience for them that they often go on and continue careers in, in science or marine mammal biology. Um, so unfortunately, because uh, I'm not able to teach that this quarter, um, you know, we, we don't have that going on. Um, we'll hope, hopefully get that going again next year. Um, we also usually have a variety of undergraduate assistants coming out and um, it's helpful for us to get more data and for them to gain an interesting experience that can help build their careers. And so that unfortunately has been put on pause as well. So it's definitely impacted us, but um, we're sort of in a, a mode where we can still collect the baseline data um, to keep our project going. And it does make me very thankful for the, the time that we do, do get to spend out here. I'm, I'm cooped up in my house whenever I'm not in here, out here in the field. So um, I definitely value the, the time outside when I'm able to do that. Mm -hmm. I can relate, definitely. And uh, you said earlier that there were some projects or other various science that was kind of put on hold because of this. Could you tell me more about that because of the pandemic? Sure, yeah. Um, the, the main project that was put on hold that would normally be done during this time of year was a collaboration between UC Santa Cruz with Dan Costa's lab and with Moss Landing Marine Labs. There's a professor there, uh, Brigitte McDonald. And this is part of a, a large elephant seal project in which they attach instruments to elephant seals. And it's going to sound a little bit funny, but they translocate them to Monterey, basically capture them at Ani Nuevo here, instrument them, and then release them down to Monterey. And they swim right back to Ani Nuevo and collect some interesting data um, for that team. And the purpose of that study is similar to the study I was describing earlier, um, basically looking at the effect of disturbance on the animals. So long story short, they play a little killer whale sound to kind of scare the animals a little bit. And, and see how they respond to that um, in terms of their physiology and behavior. And that's something that is a very interesting study. There's um, important implications for um, the way that we as humans interact with the marine environment there. Um, but unfortunately, in order to move animals between colonies, it requires a fair amount of manpower and people working closely together. So they usually have a team of you know, six or eight people to go and capture the animal and um, put it into a small cage, and lift it into the back of a truck and drive it down to Monterey. And unfortunately, that's just not a safe thing to do right now because of the pandemic to have that many people interacting closely together there. So that project was um, canceled for this season and um, hopefully they'll be able to start up again next year. Yeah, that's a shame. That sounds really fun. Um, also, what are you doing right now? You said you're out in the field. What are you doing? Yeah, so this morning um, I was involved in kind of two separate projects. Um, one was helping with these flipper tag resites. So every year we put out hundreds of flipper tags, which is, contain a unique number. It's kind of like a cattle ear tag, a way to uniquely identify each individual. And so we, we put those out in the young of the year each year. So we were doing that this past February and March. And then during the rest of the year, um, including during the molting season, we go around and look for those tags in the seals and record them and record information about the seals and then put that into our large database, incredibly long demographic data set. And that's one it would be a real shame to miss out on a year of data because it's been going for so long. So walking around the colony, collecting those data, um, was, uh, one project there. And then the other 
um, whenever I come out to, to do these other projects, I always try to pair that with um, some sort of virtual class visit um, to, you know, to maximize uh, our time out here, especially since we can't bring out classes as we normally do. So this morning I was on a, on a Zoom call with um, some elementary school students and um, basically did a virtual tour of the, the Aninuova Reserve here and showed them elephant seals and talked to them about some of the adaptations the elephant seals used to survive in the ocean. Cool. It's always a fun time out here, yeah. So basically still trucking, except not with as many people around. <laughs> yep, exactly. Okay. Awesome, great. Oh, I should mention too, um, I do have a website for Año Nuevo Reserve. It should be Año Nuevo Reserve.ucsc.edu. Thank you so much for this interview. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> have a good day. You too, bye-bye. As we move from sheltered spring to sheltered summer and the shelter-in-place restrictions are slowly being eased and allowing us to move around a bit more, we will be able to see more of the current season's migrations in person. Once again, I'm Megan. I'm Sonia. And thank you for listening to... Sheltered Spring!